sermon today on behalf of the Theology Committee, and uh, my purpose is to introduce to you uh, Steve Markadont, pastor of Sovereign Grace Reformed Baptist Church of Ontario, California, who was commissioned to write this year's circular letter. The circular letter should be in your notebooks, and uh, you probably already received it as well, even before the notebooks were issued, and hopefully you've all had a chance to look it over and read it. The subject is ministerial ordination, its legitimacy and limitations. Since I've moved to uh, California, been there almost two and a half years now, I've grown in my esteem for Pastor Markadont, for his experience, his wisdom, and his counsel. And all of those things come through in this particular circular letter. It's very helpful. It helps to clarify matters of faith and practice in our ARPCA churches, as all, the, all of these circular, uh, circular letters have done. And uh, even though it deals with ministerial ordination, and last year's uh, circular letter dealt with the minister and his study and the place of reading, these are still nonetheless good to read to all of our people in our churches. There is application and uh, important matters for all the members of our churches to understand. In fact, uh, this particular paper that Steve has written, uh, I'm personally contemplating it, uh, contemplating putting it in our Constitution as an appendix at the end. Uh, and why answer people's questions about certain matters such as this when uh, our brother has already, already written on it? So I don't want to have to reinvent the wheel. And these circular letters all are excellent in that regard. Now, after I ask Steve to come and he presents to us uh, the, letter, the uh, letter that he's written, he'll give to us a synopsis. Uh, we won't have any time for discussion formally in this gathering during this segment. Uh, so if you came prepared to discuss it, perhaps we can do that offline together or uh, with Pastor Markadont in particular or the Theology Committee. Uh, but after he's through, I want to come back up and talk a little bit about next year's circular letter and have it approved by the General Assembly and also say a word about last year's circular letter, which has been published for all of us to uh, take with us this year. So without further ado, Steve, would you come? Yes, you can find the letter on page 54 of your notebooks if you look there. And you can feel free to look at it while I speak and just spend a few moments going over some things. I'm not going to read the letter to you. But um, let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. Even though it's not directly addressed, 1 Peter chapter 5 was actually the, uh, the framework that I used for the circular letter. And uh, it was the Grace Covenant Church in Gilbert that asked that this letter be written. And uh, Darrell Gustafson visited with us one Sunday. I was preaching on the elders among you. I did about an eight-part series on that, and he asked if we would write a circular letter on that. So it comes from this. First Peter chapter 5, it says, The elders who are among you I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, 
you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. And you notice it says the elders who are among you. And we all know that Paul gave the necessary qualifications for an elder in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1. But here, as Peter gives the framework, he goes out about it a little differently and I think exhorts the elders to live out the qualifications that uh, they are to have among the people. The elders among you presupposes a few things. It presupposes the fact that the elders are a vital part of their local church. And it presupposes that the members of that local church know these men who live among them. And I mean, they really know them. I know you've had this experience. Uh, there are people in your community that watch television week after week and consider that televangelist to be their pastor. But we know that that's an impossibility because, number one, they don't really know who that man is. They couldn't possibly know that man. All they can see is the sanitized version that's put out on the television screen for them. They know nothing about his life and how he actually lives his life. And, of course, uh, we don't even need to talk about the scandals that have gone on because of things like that. But many people do consider these people to be their pastor. And it's a, impossible for another reason, too. The, the televangelist doesn't even know these people exist. You know, so it's not the type of a biblical ministry that can go on because he's not among them. A true pastor is an open book, known as a real man, even with his foibles, known as a real man among his people and the people to whom he ministers. So it's an important point. God's given to the local church the responsibility of knowing and choosing those who will be her elders. And I've, in the paper, I've got a few quotes from a summary of church discipline. That's what it's called from the Charleston Association. It's really what it is. It's, uh, it's not an appendix, but it's almost like an appendix to the 1689 Confession. They took it, they called it the Charleston Confession, then they made a summary of church discipline. It's not in the paper, but chapter 1, paragraph 4, talks about the local church choosing. It says, A church thus constituted has the keys or power of government within itself, having Christ for its head and his law for its rule. It has the power and privilege of choosing its own officers, Acts 6.3 and 13.2, exercising its own discipline, Matthew 18.17, and of administering the word and ordinances for the edification and comfort of its members, Acts 2.46 all of which, with every other act of discipline, each distinct church may exercise without being subject to the cognizance of any other church, presbytery, synod, or council. And 1 Corinthians 5.12 and Matthew 18.17. So there are at least three aspects that must accompany a man who's called to be an elder. Um, number one, it would obviously be the call of God himself upon the man. And second of all, the desire within the man because the Bible says if any man desire the office of a bishop, he desires a good work. But the third one, and the one that the paper deals with, is the recognition of the local church, of the man of God. And the church has many things it needs to consider. It needs to consider, of course, the call of God upon the man. And the members do that partly by discerning from the qualifications given in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1. And they also have to discern the profit they receive from the man as he moves among them, as he deals privately with them, as he ministers publicly to them. Is the church edified? Does he show forth the spirit of Christ? And one of the attributes that a man must have if he's going to be a proper minister is humility. And 
We see this in this particular passage. Peter models that for us. He says, The elders who are among you I exhort, who also am a fellow elder. And you know the Apostle Peter, right? And the things he could have said. And there is a time to exercise authority. The Apostle Paul had to do that to the Corinthian church and had to defend his apostleship. But Peter here exhorts the fellow elders. He could have commanded as an apostle. He could have pulled rank, tried to exercise authority. Instead, he models the humility that we see in verses, well, the end of verse 5 and then verse 6. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. And one of the interesting things about an elder as she chooses, or as a church as she chooses her elder, I think it's an apt illustration. It's not a perfect illustration. But I think it's an apt illustration to think about a single woman as she has suitors come amongst her and she has the choice of which man to marry. Right? She's not commanded by God to marry any one man. But she has the choice. When she marries that man, she'll have to submit to him. And she'll have to be a wife. But until she marries him, she doesn't have to submit to him. And that's God's protection of her. And it's a great protection. And the same thing's true with the local church, too. The people of God. Uh, they don't have to choose any one particular man, but they should seek the mind of God. And when they do choose a man, then as long as he's following the scriptures, they should follow that man. And, um, and, uh, and give due honor. And oftentimes that doesn't happen. And, of course, that causes its own problems. Uh, the church's best protection is in choosing a man who will be a proper pastor to them. And if you look at verses 2 and 3, I won't read them again, but let me just summarize verses 2 and 3. And there's three things that, that Paul says here, or Peter says here. He says, not because you must, but because you will. Take the oversight. Not because you must, but because you're willing. Not greedy for money but eager to serve, and not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples of the flock. And Calvin says, in exhorting pastors to their duty, he points out three vices especially which are often to be found, namely sloth, desire for gain, and lust for power. And I think Calvin is very correct as he says that. So the church's protection is in choosing men who will be proper pastors to her. And I quote from the Charleston Summary of Church Discipline again, this time chapter 2, paragraph 1. As they, talking about elders, have the charge of souls and are leaders in the house of God, churches cannot be too careful in choosing men to the ministerial functions. They ought to be men fearing God, being born again of the Spirit, sound in the faith, and of blameless lives, and conversations as becomes the gospel of Christ, having fervent desires to save souls. That a number of scriptures are given there. It's also mentioned in the letter, and I think it's well worth mentioning right now, is that uh, really the church also has a responsibility to her sister churches, as he chooses those that as she chooses those that will be her elders. And uh, it's true that a pastor's authority is limited to his own congregation, but it's also true that a pastor and pastors will be respected by the sister churches even be respected by the community at large as a pastor. And I tried to make that point in the circular letter in the context of our Arbka churches. 
that it's vital that we, that we as an association, we hold to a full subscription view. And it's vital that we only ordain men who hold to a full subscription view. And again, this is protection for the church. It's protection for the man, too. The church is protected because she knows the doctrinal framework that there'll be for her church. And they can hold the confession and, and sincerely say this is the, these are the things most surely believed amongst us and they'll hear them preached from their pulpit. It's also a great protection for the man for if his doctrine is called into question, uh, he can in good conscience say I'm simply preaching to you the things that we've already told you were going to be preached in the framework that we've all agreed on together. And then there's also the importance of ordination vows and there's a section there, I think on page 5 of the letter there, on ordination vows. And, of course, that's just a sample, and it's a very uh, sketchy one. You can uh, expand upon that, and there's really good models you could look at. I was trying to keep the letter down to six pages, so, so it could be front and back. So that had to cut a lot of things out. But um, I think ordination vows are, are very important, because as a man takes ordination vows in an established Reformed Baptist church, he actually will also promise to resign if his views were to change and if he were to find himself in a view that's out of harmony with the confession. And that's an honest thing to do. And I think it's the right thing to do when you're in an established Reformed Baptist church. I know many of us have been involved in, in reforming projects. And if a church is reformable, then by all means, do all that you can to reform it. That's a, that's a great work and God has reformed many of our churches just that way. But I think most of us don't want to see our 1689 churches reformed again out of that mode. And so there's something concrete for us to stand upon. Just mention one more thing and then I'll turn it back to you Arden there. Um, regarding men who are former pastors. There's a lot of things we could say about that. And that was one of the important parts of the circular letter was to talk about this. And it's something that many churches will have to deal with, men that were in the ministry, and now they're no longer in the ministry, and they, they come to your church, they come to you. And it's a great opportunity when that happens. And it can be a great blessing to the church and a great blessing to the man. It also creates its own challenges and its own difficulties that we have to be aware of, too. And really, the best advice that I think we could give in a situation like that to the man, first of all, that used to be in the ministry and now no longer is, and he's coming to you, usually there's something that's happened, there's been a, some kind of a split or a difficulty or a problem and a heartache, and there's going to be a lot of healing that will have to be involved. The best advice we could give to the former pastor is to study to become a good church member. Because if you can become a good church member, it well may be that God will allow you to be back in the ministry once again by His grace. And if you can become a useful church member, it's likely that uh, your usefulness will then be evident to all those in the congregation in which you now are in. And of course, the current elders also need to work with the man to help him in areas where he needs help. If he still has the desire for the eldership, they should put him on some kind of a course to help him towards that end if he's capable of preaching maybe even giving preaching opportunities from time to time. And it's a challenge for the church, too. And it's a fine line that you have to walk because um, often a man will carry himself very well as a former pastor and 
can easily even draw people after himself. And the people begin to look to him as a pastor when he's not. And so it's important that the church members realize this man may be a mature man. He may be a potential elder. And we're working towards that end. But they realize that he's not an elder until he has the approbation of the church and is actually brought into the eldership of that particular church. It's the best way to go about it. I'll just conclude with this, again, from the Charleston Summary of Church Discipline. And this is in the paper, talking about a church that has no minister. A church having no minister should look among its own members and see if there be any who seem to have promising gifts and graces for that great work. If such a one is found, he's to be put on private trial for a season. When I'm finding him promising that they are edified by his preaching, they may call him to preach in public. After which, if it should appear that his rod, like Aaron's, buds, blossoms, and bears fruit, he is to be set apart by ordination, that he may perform every part of the sacred function, Acts 13, 2, and 3. But should no such person be found in the church, it is the duty of a sister church, if possible, to supply them. And if a person who is a member of another church be approved and inclined to accept a call from them, he must first become a member with them, so they may choose him from among themselves, See Acts 1.21, and thus were deacons chosen in Acts 6.3. So thank you for the opportunity to write the letter, and uh, may the Lord bless. Thank you, Steve, for your labors. They're excellent. And uh, I enjoyed that article very much, and it clarified certain things for me, and I appreciate the way in which it maintains the the authority of the local church. Uh, I'm going to reverse the order of what I said I was going to do and talk about last year's uh, circular letter, which was written by Pastor Lindblad, Don Lindblad of uh, Kirkland, Washington. It is called The Minister and His Study, The Place of Reading and Pastoral Ministry. And though I was not here last year, to my own uh, regret, I heard that there was some kind of motion or maybe commotion after the uh, presentation of Don, that this be put in print. And uh, that was then communicated to the Publications Committee, who then called me and asked us at Trinity in La Mirada to perhaps consider publishing it under Reformed Baptist Publications, which we have done. And I've brought a whole box, so everybody can take a free copy home of this, uh, this conference. Uh, you don't see them out there yet, because I haven't had time to open the box put them out, but please uh, limit yourself to one per person, and then uh, if you'd like to order more, there'll be some order forms there on the table you can fill out and mail to the address or call the Secretary of Trinity. And then <clears throat> I'm also to announce next year's recommended circular letter, and next year's letter is at the request of the Theology Committee to be written by Pastor Steve Garrick of Heritage Baptist Church in Mansfield, Texas. The subject being recommended is deacons, leaders, or servants. And uh, perhaps that will resonate with many of you in terms of clarifying the role of the diaconate, the role between the elders and the deacons, and uh, what uh, manner of authority do they have, and and in what sphere, and so on. So that is the suggested subject for this next year's circular letter, but it requires that the General Assembly uh, approve of that, and so I'm going to hand it over at this time to the Chairman, 
to uh, do that part of the business. Thank you. Do I hear a motion from the floor that we accept the recommendation of the Theology Committee for the circular letter to be written by Steve Garrick next year? What was the official title again? Deacons, Leaders, or Servants. Do I have a motion from the floor to accept that recommendation? In the back, Brandon Smith. Do I have a second? Jim Dundas, a second. All in favor of this motion, please say aye. Aye. All opposed, no. The motion then carries. Thank you, gentlemen, for your work, especially Steve Markadon. We thank you for your work on this paper this year. At this time, I'm going to ask Steve Woodman if he would come and lead us in a song before our brother comes to speak to us.